Welcome to the Deep Printer Movies Podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Printer Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today in the podcast, I'm joined by the dark wave duo Boy Harsha, aka Jay Matthews and Augustus Muller. We are here to discuss their new film and accompanying soundtrack, The Runner. It's a 30-minute short film which mixes a horror movie, live performance, music videos, and faux documentary, let's say. I've been a fan of their music for several years now. It was really excited to chat. Here is me and Boy Harsha. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. Hi. Hello. This is a really ominous picture to talk to you through. Yeah, we would give you some video, but we've got sort of a unique recording setup. We're trying to like a USB mic right now, so it's not the best video for us. Okay, I can talk to you through this weird avatar. You want to? We'll just give you a sneak peek real quick. <laughs> okay. Okay, I can visualize you guys better. Okay, I'm going to turn this off. <laughs> okay, so I was just going through your really great vice list that you sent us. Yeah, that's a cool assignment. Yeah, I love everything but the attacks on Manhunter. I won't stand for that. <laughs> Are you a Manhunter fan? Oh, I'm a huge Manhunter fan, I think. Yeah, probably the best serial killer ever in a movie, and... I love the soundtrack and uh, yeah, just that classic Michael Mann vision where everything's just at dusk and blue. I already get behind. I mean, to be fair, I am also a Manhunter fan, but there's just like some irredeemable Michael Mann tropes in it that I just, I think had to point out. Yeah. I kind of give him a pass because it's just a Michael Mann universe where everything is still late 80s <laughs> even when he's filming now it still looks the same which i kind of love the style is impeccable for sure i mean just the walking through the murder scene and talking on his tape i love that tableau so much all the modern bedroom yeah i love all the interiors and i think hannibal lecter's cell was like an art gallery or a museum that he reconverted to be the holding cell which is really cool well that was my one one thing is like silence of the lambs is one of my favorite films yeah and just comparing the hannibal lecter introduction scene between that and manhunter is just like crazy just like it i feel like it's so much more successful in in silence of the lambs compared to manhunter well he's i think brian cox said he plays hannibal insane and Anthony Hopkins plays it crazy <laughs> was um, his. But I think Brian Cox is kind of, yeah, more low key, but more creepy when he's like just casually asking him for his home phone number and things like that. 
No, I mean, I love Brian Cox. It's just like the, it's just so bright and it's just, yeah, yeah. it feels hard calorie. It's just like not, there's no vibe in it at all. It's like, he's like in a waiting room. I think the chemistry too between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins is something I really appreciate. I think you miss that a little bit in Manhunter because they're both just like men with disturbed minds. Yeah. And Jodie's just this earnest angel who's thinking about lambs. Also, I really like that reuse of the Tangerine Dream solo music they use. I think it's in the that classic date night where he takes her to go to see a anesthetized tiger. Do you remember that? Yeah, what else is it in? There's a, it's a solo Tangerine Dream track from uh, Klaus from Tangerine Dream. Yeah. And it's from that movie Angst. I think it's like a serial, German serial killer movie. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that's a real cool scene. I actually haven't seen that. That's been on my list for a long time. I've been trying to find a copy of it, but it's pretty difficult. Gus only watches things on VHSs he finds on eBay. That's not true, but <laughs> I'd like some movies I'd prefer to watch that way. So if we go back, did you guys meet in film school? Yeah, we were both living in Savannah. I was at undergrad at uh, film school and Jay was in her graduate program. How was your film school experience? It's something that comes up a lot on the podcast with people we talk to. I mean, I've got a lot of resentment just because I'm so much in debt. I feel like Jay feels a similar way. And I feel like this school we went to is such just like a corporation. I had the unique opportunity to go to both the state school because my undergrad education was at this school called SUNY Purchase, which is a state college. And I went there for film and then the graduate program, I went to a private art school. And there's just this wild difference between state education, right? Like my teachers were deeply invested in their students. And then going to the private art school, it just so clearly is a, it's the monetary investment, right? Like the teachers don't really care and you're just kind of paying into the system. What kind of movies were you making? Were you both like directing stuff? By the time I got to Savannah, I was focusing more on producing and writing. Um, and at the time, I think I was really into realism. And so I was like um, writing a bunch of pieces about, I don't know, I was heavily, heavily influenced by David Gordon Green, like his early stuff and when I was much younger, I loved Harmony Korean, right? But then I think I slowly started realizing that movies are really more fun if you're investing in the ride, you know? Like, we get to watch films because you're experiencing something else. You're experiencing fear. You're entering into really weird worlds. So then I was really moving into things that were a little more scary and bizarre. Heavily inspired, you know, David Lynch. And were you guys making music as well at this time? Or did that come later? It came a little bit later. So I was always making music to the, the films I was working on. And that's something I, I always wanted to do. And sort of at the end of our time in Savannah, that's when we started the band. And that kind of went way better than 
making movies for us. So we just kind of moved over to that by accident. Gus, what were you watching? What were your formative films? In film school, I was like really into Michael Haneke. I was obsessed with that stuff. I was really into the long take. And he just like really long takes. But then I love Haneke stuff because the violence in it. So I just like was obsessed with covering violence in like a really like matter of fact way like that. How about Seventh Continent? Did you like that that one? I think that one's really slept on from the Haneke catalog. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I, I was more into like the white ribbon, like Benny's video. Benny's video, yeah, Benny's is video was, I think if I watched that now, it would be bigger for me. But at the time it was all like white ribbon. Um, and that, the like the post-apocalyptic one was really big for me too. Oh, what was that one called? Uh, Wolf and, uh, something. The Year of the Wolf? Yes, I think that's it. The Seventh Continent is the one where a family just decide to destroy all their possessions and make a suicide pact. It's really clinical and intense with just like static shots of them. There's like a 45 minutes footage of them just smashing up their house and destroying every possession they own. Which was, mm-hmm. uh, is that before or after Benny's video? Just before. But what? I can't. I think I saw it, one of those films. I saw at university, and I think it's kind of always out of print or not included on box sets and stuff. But really good, especially when you have no idea what where the fuck this is heading and why they're just destroying the kitchen sink and the bed and all the book burning all the books and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, sounds wild. Like I think we still love his like mixed media style too, like using like analog or like you know old VHS footage in his films and like such like a like fine art way almost yeah i remember in funny games when he rewinds the footage that was that blew my mind when i first saw that i think that's probably when many people gave up on that film but yeah it was definitely <laughs> just- <laughs> that was the first film i saw that in theaters when i was living in austin and that that movie definitely like changed my life being like oh wow now i understand like there's this whole new world of films that i need to start exploring So when you came up with the concept of the runner, am I right in thinking the first image you guys had was just of a pair of trainers? Was that right? Sort of. More so as like we kept on talking about this woman running through the woods and she's covered in blood. We live in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts. So we're blessed to be able to see a lot of wooded areas. So the first image was, yeah, this idea of, following this girl running through the woods the thing i was most impressed by is the the way you guys have constructed the movie because a lot of the music video slash visual albums are just pretty much a series of music videos cut together but the way you guys are blaring between 
the music videos, the narrative horror movie, and the documentary band footage was so impressive. Can you talk to me how you juggled all that together and came up with that format? Well, it started with us essentially having a finished album. So the soundtrack came first. We had these songs and we were able to write the script around that. So I think those limitations really made us be creative. And then the narrative, just the more we started to work on it, the narrative portion of it was just, just started to become way more important. So we put a lot of our energy into expanding that. I think initially there was this idea to create something that was a little more live stream-y or whatever, because that is what everyone was seeking at the time in the height of that part of the pandemic, which was a form of media we wouldn't really be able, we were on having trouble figuring out how to do that. So the behind the music type of scenes that exist in the runner now came out of this idea like, oh, that will fulfill like the live stream needs. And it's credited as a Boy Harsha movie. I was wondering, do you guys have assigned roles or strengths you both separated off into? Or was it everything together? in terms of technical working with the actors and things like that? I mean, we definitely fight about our roles, I'd say. We both we both do it all. And then that makes things can, like it's, it makes things better, but it also makes things complex. Is that a fair way to say? Yeah. I mean, we sort of split things off a little bit. You were going to do more performance stuff. I was going to be doing more shot design stuff right i worked with the actors more and you worked with our dp more and i did more of the like actual producing on the ground and then gusted most of the post-production so when i was like location scouting or casting you know then it would be kind of mirrored in the end where gus was spending hours just on the computer cutting this together And were there films or music videos you were looking at for inspiration along the way? Yeah, the the movie we kept just like referencing to everyone was Blood Simple. Like we just thought that was such a, I mean, it's obviously way higher production than what we were doing. But I, I think as a reference, it is like a really efficient film. It's a very simple film. And we were just trying to like, see what techniques they were using in that to make such like a dynamic picture. We recently rewatched it way before we knew we were going to make this film. And I think it's remarkable because there's so little dialogue in the actual movie when you watch it. I mean, there's definitely great dialogue. Like we were interested in watching something that could be put together so simply and be so effective. And any music videos you were watching? You have really great music videos cut into your film. Uh, yeah, so the Jonathan Demi directed New Order video, The Perfect Kiss. Oh, I can't remember that one. You wouldn't, because it seems just like a studio. I think most people have seen it. If you Google, if you YouTube The Perfect Kiss, there's this very simple sort of in-studio performance of the perfect kiss official music video. I was just like upset not knowing it was directed by Jonathan Demi. 
and just kind of always using it as a reference as just like this perfect little performance video. But then when I started to dig, I found out it was directed by Jonathan Demi. And then the, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but the, the cinematographer from uh, Wings of Desire and like Beauty of Beast, Beauty and the Beast, like that, like. Uh, Robbie Mola? No, it's that like French. Um, oh, when, when this guy before that, right. Yeah, like older guy. He did like the 50s Beauty and the Beast, like the Master of Light. Like those two came to England and shot this this music video. That's nuts. Yeah, um, so was definitely obsessed with that and used that. It's such a simple music video too. That's like what, maybe that's why you can't remember. It's kind of unremarkable. So did you guys map out treatments for each of the separate videos and then merge that with the narrative horror and the documentary footage or did it all come about together? I was just curious on your process. It was one screenplay. We wrote the screenplay as a whole. Then for production purposes, we split it into two screenplays and it tackled one at a time. Two different separate productions even. Yeah. But yeah, it was always just supposed to run as one fluid story. I think we learned definitely some lessons on the quote unquote documentary side of it. I mean, that part was the hardest for me. I'm incredibly uncomfortable on camera. And so having the script, maybe next time we do it, if we ever do anything like that again, it will be better to be a little more aware of the camera. And like, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like maybe as they do in reality shows, I guess they just give you a scenario and then they say, roll with it you know maybe we'll do that for our reality television show keeping up with the harshes (laughs) exactly yeah i'd so watch that that'd be great (laughs) like purient pops round for like a afternoon (laughs) hang or something that would be fucking amazing (laughs) yeah i mean we definitely would have a lot of fun with like our friends that would be great one of the things i really loved watching it and especially on repeat viewings is the all the details and set design are so on point and kind of all feed into that boy boy harsher universe that you kind of pick up from from listening to your music so much like the the motels the bars the analog tvs and stuff um i think i remember seeing you guys on instagram occasionally having weird requests for very specific items so i'm guessing you guys were really detailed and anal in piecing all this together yeah i yeah and i am totally guilty of doing the like instagram asks often but seeking in terms of locations we knew that the one thing that would make it really successful because we didn't really have a big budget at all like we didn't have a huge art department that could like build sets. So we just wanted to find the perfect set that we could mold a small amount to be what we needed. And so we spent so much time going around Massachusetts and upstate New York and Vermont looking for the teenager's house. Um, That's where Cooper Handy is watching television and Chris comes in and scares him. And that was actually finding that we were about to give up and like having to maybe rewrite and reconceive of that location. 
but maybe a week before we were supposed to start shooting, I randomly called this guy who's like a very silly old guy and his house was on the market and he was like, yeah, you guys can shoot there, but will you like, we had to move some like big pieces of metal or something off the property for him. And the house ended up being perfect. Like all the furniture was in there and everything. And same thing with the bars. We made a this radius where, so we live outside in Northampton, Massachusetts, and we made a radius around that for looking at every dive bar. So we went and looked at everything in the Berkshires and everything below us along the Connecticut border and then into Central Mass. And we ended up finding the Shootsbury Athletic Club, which is the bar location. And that place is so ridiculous and so funny. We've actually now casually become members and we go and drink and play pool there. That's for the give me a reason section, right? Yes. Yeah, that bar looks incredible. That looks totally like something out of Fire Walk With Me or something. Yeah, it's amazing. In the winter, they have this wood stove. And then in the summer out back, they have that gazebo where they have country music. That lighting was so incredible in that section where she's going from like the deep reds to like the blue as she's walking around the table. That looks so good. Yeah, that's Dollar DP, Dan DeBray. We had a really small crew, but he was able to do some pretty amazing things. He was really into the idea of, right, is that in The Color of Money, where it's like just the like fluorescent tubes over the tables. And so like this idea of this bright white in the center of a room and then like kind of having very atmospheric, like stylish colors hitting her as she's walking around the room Mm -hmm. and how did you land on christina for the lead role uh this this has been in sort of in the works for a long time when we went on tour with nightcrawler chris's other solo project um we were sort of talking about just for fun what making a horror film would be like um so then when, when we had the idea of making the runner um jay just like sort of picked chris immediately and then we started writing the character for her and then yeah it just sort of all fell together really perfectly and had she acted before not really i mean she acted in one of our music videos for motion but i don't think she's had a lot of sort of narrative work yeah i think we're calling this and she's calling this you know her breakout role and it was great seeing James Duvall. He ma- he he kind of matches perfectly in your world with his film. I'm guessing you guys are big Iraqi fans as well. Yeah, that I actually watched Iraqi for the first time uh, in 2020. Really? Oh, that's interesting. On VHS, that's where I started with it. But it was, yeah, definitely a huge revelation for me. I mean, yeah, Mysterious Skin is one of my all-time favorite films. But the James connection is, I think that's this this funny example of being really lucky and not, I don't know, he was just like a fan or a, a follower on Twitter. Gus is a Twitter, so I don't really understand how it works. And so I was like, why don't you just message him and see if he wants to be in this music video? And he responded right away, super enthusiastically he's basically the nicest guy in the world 
yeah, you kind of get that vibe from his performances that he's a really sweet, earnest person. It kind of comes through. Yeah. Yeah, he was on. I mean, he came to set for like an hour or something. We shot shot out those scenes really quickly, and he just, yeah, he just crushed the character so fast and just added such a good little element to that that part. And we'll you'll see an extended version of that. We're releasing like a video for Machina proper, um, and it's sort of like an extended version of that scene. And he's got some good camera time on that as well. Something I keep on noticing more and more with cinema as it gets more corporate and you know things like the marvel universe and stuff is i've got this line that i say about people with high definition faces that i miss from films like when i think it's when robert rodriguez was filming danny trejo he had this new camera and said danny trejo has a high definition face <laughs> and i need this 4k camera to capture it and so i just took that line so anytime i see people like Sissy Spacek or Shelley Duvall or like Harry Dean Stanton. And I was like, these people have high definition faces. And you guys had so many beautiful and unique faces in your film, in the general casting, like Christina and Sigrid, uh, Mariana. What was your approach for casting and picking out all these really interesting, unique people? There was this period of time where I really wanted to go into casting because I think I do look at people in a similar way. Um, I've never actually regarded it that way, but I, you see a face and you're like, wow, that's a face. I want to yeah. like put that in, something, you know? Yeah. And so it, especially with the l women, the female leads, I mean, Mariana Saldana is so beautiful, but we always knew she would be in it. Right. Because she is actually the woman singing in Machina, but with Sigrid, we had performed with her once. She's like in this really amazing performance art group called Flucked. And they are wild and it's like very movement based and very physical. But she just has this like incredibly emotive face. And we had no idea if she'd be able to act or if she'd be interested in it. And so when we asked her, it was a little surprising to discover that she was so good, right? Like, I think she just has a perfect chemistry with Chris and on camera, she just looks good. It's fun to watch her face. Jay's got a really great talent to recognize non-actors who will be great on camera. Like it's like a sixth sense or something. I do love non-actors. That's one thing we did a lot in Savannah. So she would just like, throw someone's name out there and we talk about it and I would just trust her gut that it would work out. So it's not like, I mean, there's no dialogue, so we didn't really read anybody, but we just sort of cast everyone based off knowing them. Based off that face. Yeah. I mean, the bar scene probably is the most fun example of that because all of the backgrounds for the most part are friends who like Renee Nunez, who is the um, neck brace guy with a neck man. brace. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that guy's <laughs> that guy's instantly funny. When you see him playing pool, you're like, yeah, there's a story there as to why he got his neck snapped or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's also just so funny, and he's a great example of like, I love like looking at his face. I want to just keep looking at him and. Um, RJ Supa's in the back, just chain smoking at the gambling machine. That guy's got a great face. He kind of looks like someone from Twin Peaks. Yeah. 
and he just was so natural. Like, I mean, obviously he's just playing the gambling machine, but maybe I can spot people because I'm the complete opposite. As soon as I'm aware of a camera, I get really jumpy and uncomfortable, but the bartender is actually the owner of the RV. Um, that Sigrid lives in and we were like, wow, Cliff, you look great. You want to be the bartender? And then the cowboy hat man is actually the country music guy who performs at the Shootsbury Athletic Club all the time. And so he's just kind of this funny character who were like, you want to be in this movie we're making? I feel like many people are like, what is this? Right? Like <laughs> cowboy hat guy and Zach, they're all like, what are you guys doing? I can't forget Aaron Ricks, who played Big Eyes. The and, best. Yeah, they really just brought so much more to that scene that we were missing, and they just sort of figured it out on set. It's important to shout out all these people because it's like, yeah, we were working with so little, so just everyone brought so much into making this thing what it is because we couldn't foresee all these little elements. Yeah, you really forget. I mean, that's the joy of writing, right, where you get to, like, create your own controlled world on paper. But then when you're actually producing it, you forget how much there is. Like there's so many loose ends and we are incredibly lucky to have all these people just coming and like tying up the ends themselves, you know, instead of us being like, oh my God, you have to like look like this or do this. Like everyone came and like brought what they wanted their character to be. And really just, that was one of the most fun days I think we had was the bar day. How many days were you shooting for? How long was the, sh the shoot? The That section, which the narrative section was four days. And then... With two pickups. Right. We had to come back and do two pickup days. And then the studio was one day. Wow. So altogether like a week-ish? Exactly. A week divided among several months, which was like kind of a wild ride because at that point, the pickup days were, could have been very challenging. Like we had a big Chris to not cut her hair and Cooper, I don't know if you noticed, but in the truck, like in the fields with the dirt bike, his hair is much longer because like the kid's hair grows super fast, I guess. But yeah. I mean, every day we, we had to cut shots. I mean, we were just like using every single minute of every single day to try to get the coverage we needed. And we shot on 16, so that was deeply challenging in certain regards, too, because we had to be super aware of what was actually, you know, we couldn't waste any film. Yeah, I remember that from film school. It was so terrifying <laughs> the second we start shooting, like, nobody fuck anything up. This is, gonna, <laughs> this is so fucking expensive. Please just nail it and then just hope it comes out when you get it developed because we didn't know what the fuck we were doing either. Yeah, I mean, we're that would be my number one fear. But again, incredibly lucky that Dan DeBray and his team like did know what they were doing. But in film school, yeah, like the first two years had to be all 16 or something nutty. And constantly I was like, oh, like this is completely underexposed. <laughs> like just you're a mess, you know, and you're paying like so much money to prove that you're a mess. Yeah, the production people hated me because I was such a dick. I'd be like, hi, I've just seen Pi, and now I want to shoot on like ultra grainy black and white <laughs> stock. Can you accommodate that? And then come back like, 
I've just seen Buffalo 66. Can we like <laughs> skip the acid process when you develop my stock? So I have an, a different texture and they're like, no, fuck off. You're just going to get this <laughs> standard stock just like everyone else got. And like, we're not going to outsource like an extra batch of Kodak monochrome just for <laughs> your dumb five minute film. So you've got to well, ask. I mean, Bubble 66 is funny because I went to this like state run again with the state school's like film camp for like young precocious idiots and one of the teachers so that is the first time I saw Buffalo 66 and I remember having the exact same feeling like I want everything I make to look like this and she is actually in the film I don't know yeah she's the bartender at the end it's like a bit role but it's like when he goes into the club like that immaculate scene right with the stills oh is she the one who like points to yeah she wow yeah yeah jen dennis taught me to love 16 millimeter showed me that film yeah i think he had to get kodak to make a batch of that exclusively for him i think now it's become it's came it's came back for as a standard but they had to negotiate to get that type of bleach bypass specifically for that wow i think he saw like uh he he saw he brought them in a old american football game that was shot in the 70s and he was like i want it to look like this <laughs> and so yeah that sounds about right yeah i wanted to talk about the end song and titles and end credit sequence with cooper singing autonomy firstly i think that track was incredible and i found it moving i don't know what got to me i think it was how earnest and sincere cooper is singing directly to to camera you don't see that very often and i really enjoyed seeing everyone's face at the end of the end credits it just really got me yeah that's sort of a last minute idea right before shooting um because we wanted we were trying to fit all these songs in so we needed a spot to fit autonomy in and then just picturing that it just was like sort of this light bulb went off just Let's do like, I keep calling it like a Farley Brothers <laughs> credit sequence. <laughs> like, like something about Mary or just like some bad thing like that. But something about the, like that end is so like heavy and there's just, it kind of makes that song even more like, I don't know, ecstatic to have it at the end of that. So it was just sort of this last minute idea and we threw it together and we're really excited how it turned out. Yeah, I think when you have these like joyous experiences with like casts, you want to just have their one last moment where they're being goofy or I don't know. We just watched Licorice Pizza and they they spoiler alert do that in the credits too. And I was like, oh man, you know, they beat us to it this time. <laughs> yeah, I think it was great seeing obviously everyone's got these really intense roles and then just seeing them humanized and just like natural fun people was a really sweet touch and cooper singing directly to camera is so cool um all his hand gestures and like staring down the camera that was a really great performance that you don't really see these days he's an amazing performer 
like hopefully you know you'll have the opportunity to see him live soon someday but he's just an amazing live performer too and that track is so good that's like it kind of gives me depeche mode 101 vibes or something cool thanks yeah um that's one of my favorite songs on on the album was really fun to make i feel like it's a little bit divisive but i'm I'm hoping when the album comes out people will get behind it yeah how was it for you guys having extra vocalists yeah it was it was a lot of fun and it was what needed you know this is like a covid album we're writing this in like the hardest time to be creative at least the music part of it so we needed these assignments so reaching out to another vocalist kind of gave us some structure yeah it was good to work with others i guess and what's next for you guys any idea any plans for more films or expanding into a feature or another album well we are on a little bit of a road trip right now um I don't know if I'm really supposed to say that, but uh, yeah, we're in a trailer park in Florida right now working on a new screenplay as we speak. We wanted to go somewhere warm, but like away from people because obviously things are pretty scary. So we're Mm -hmm. in this like warm, but remote zone and we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to expand elements of the runner into a feature. Sick. I'm also very weirdly excited now about writing more music too. I think it's partially because the runner is just really to me a soundtrack. And so I'm also looking forward to diving back into like the boy harsher mainstays, getting ready for, you know, doing some depraved dance music. Well, that's a great line to end on. <laughs> cool. I'm going to let you guys go. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much, yeah. And I'll say hi to you guys at the screening. Please do. We'd love to riff about some movies some more. There you go, Boy Harsha. Great chat. I highly recommend you check out their music. They're one of my favorite bands. Although I will say, please do not listen to anything Gus has said about Manhunter being a ridiculous film or unrealistic. As you all know, Michael Mann is known for his realism. Do definitely check out their film, The Runner. I know it's showing on Shudder, the horror streaming platform, in the US and the UK. Head over to their website for more information. Thank you to my engineer, Ewan Hinselwood. Thank you to Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. Okay, let's sign off with a song. This is Give Me a Reason by Boy Harsha from their new record and soundtrack, The Runner. Deeper into movies. Thanks for listening.